The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Prognosis. I'm Laura Carlson. It's day 20 since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. Cases around the world have soared past 745,000. Today, the deadly tipping point that determines when COVID-19 kills. But first, the day's main stories. President Donald Trump extended guidelines for Americans to practice social distancing until at least the end of April. Last week, he had said he hoped to see life return to normal by Easter. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, as well as Deborah Burks, the State Department immunologist advising Vice President Mike Pence, were able to change the president's mind about a swift economic restart by showing him projections that millions of Americans may wind up infected. President Trump said Sunday that 100,000 people or more may die. Only a few weeks ago, the president repeatedly downplayed concerns about the virus, saying it would go away and he was not concerned at all. A former FDA commissioner proposed a roadmap for eventually getting people back to work and lifting restrictions on movement. Scott Gottlieb is a physician and one of the co-authors of a paper released Sunday by conservative think tank American Enterprise Institute. The paper spells out a four-phase plan for navigating the COVID-19 pandemic. The paper recommends continuing with aggressive social distancing measures until there has been a sustained reduction in cases for 14 days. At that point, Gottlieb and his colleagues say, governments could start lifting restrictions very gradually, but the plan requires widespread testing that's not currently in place in the U.S. And we seem far from reaching that two-week period of reduction in cases. The infection rate in the U.S. continues to escalate, and the number of deaths grew to more than 2,500 over the past two days. All around the world, the number of places enacting strict isolation measures is going up. The Thai tourist hotspot of Phuket went on lockdown and Moscow's nearly 13 million residents were ordered to stay home. In the U.S., Maryland Governor Larry Hogan issued a stay-at-home order, saying voluntary measures weren't working. And on Monday afternoon, Governor Ralph Northam echoed the decision in Virginia. Virginians were ordered to remain in their homes, except for essential services. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And now today's main story, the deadly tipping point. 
The new coronavirus has sickened hundreds of millions and will infect many more. But only a small fraction of the people who get the virus die. The virus acts in a way that scientists are still trying to figure out. In some people who are infected, symptoms are mild, like a common cold. Some don't have symptoms at all. In others, though, symptoms are severe and even fatal, with the infection stopping the lungs from functioning and causing the body to shut down. So why are symptoms so mild in some people and deadly in others? It turns out there's a tipping point, a moment where the virus moves from one part of the body to another. That can determine whether the virus is manageable or fatal. Jason Gale spoke to experts to understand what the virus does to us once it's in our bodies. As COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus, spreads around the world, scientists are beginning to understand more about how it maims and kills. A picture is emerging of an enigmatic pathogen whose effects are mainly mild, but which occasionally and unpredictably become serious in the second or third week. In a fraction of patients, bodily systems start to fall apart in a cascade. But what causes this deadly tipping point? Other diseases like SARS or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome and influenza offer important clues about what's going on inside the body when someone has COVID-19. The clinical picture suggests a pattern of disease that's not dissimilar to what we might see in influenza with a range of outcomes. Dr. Jeffrey Torbenberger is a pathologist who studied the infection in victims of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, including one exhumed more than 20 years ago from permafrost in northwestern Alaska. Jeffrey heads the Viral Pathogenesis and Evolution section of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in Bethesda, Maryland. In his spare time, he's a musician and composes symphonies and operas. But COVID-19 is his current focus. The answer to what the pathogenesis is and why certain people are having more severe disease and others are having mild disease is not fully understood. But I think that in relation to other diseases, SARS 20 years ago, almost, and influenza now for 100 years, we have information where it's at least analogous. COVID-19 causes little more than a cough if it stays in the nose and throat, which it does for most people unlucky enough to be infected. The vast majority of people who are exposed to a virus to which they probably don't have protective immunity get infected, and most of them clear their virus and get better with varying illness. A report from China in February showed that one in seven patients develops difficulty breathing, and 6% of cases are critical. It's why hospitals worldwide are either experiencing or bracing for scores of patients requiring mechanical ventilation for days to weeks. Jeffrey says infection is like a dance between the host, that's us, and the pathogen, in this case, the new coronavirus. What causes disease and how quickly it can escalate comes down to an interplay of three factors, how nasty the virus is, the body's immune response to it, and the role of secondary infections. What generally happens is that you get an infection of a virus that sets up an infection along cells that line your respiratory tract, maybe starting at your nose, maybe migrating downward into your trachea and bronchus, and then maybe eventually into lungs. If your infection is limited to the upper respiratory tract, more like a cold, even with influenza, you're mostly likely to get a cold virus-like disease. Mild, you have 
sore throat and a cough and sniffles and sneeze, maybe fever, but you otherwise don't get severely ill. Danger starts when the virus reaches the lungs. Pathogenic viruses that induce a lot of direct cell death along the respiratory tract induce a very strong inflammatory response, a kind of a so-called pro-inflammatory response that itself is actually damaging to bystander cells. The inflammatory response is an initial warning system, like a fire alarm. The body's first responders Different types of white blood cells known as neutrophils and macrophages are sent out to destroy and dispose of infected cells and repair damaged tissue. Let's say, in an analogy, you don't necessarily know where the fire is, but there's a fire, and so you should do something. We should turn on the sprinklers, we should call the fire department, we should turn on the water hose. So this initial inflammatory response is that initial response. There's something wrong, we need to do something. Normally, if this goes well, the infection is cleared up in just a few days. The inflammation tamps down viral replication, enabling the body to recover. But in rare instances, this inflammatory response goes overboard and becomes damaging, Jeffrey says. Cells that may not even be infected with the virus can be targeted and damaged by these inflammatory cells. Your body's immediately trying to repair the damage in the lung as soon as it's happening. Uh, and then it's a question of does the inflammatory in the virus win or does your reparative and immune responses win? And most of the time, the immune responses win because most people who get infected with these viruses survive, but in some people, they don't. The destruction of cells can release toxins into the bloodstream, attracting more neutrophils to clean up the dead material. And that can itself kind of create kind of a perfect storm of augmenting the inflammatory response further. Studies of fatal COVID-19 patients have confirmed this kind of bystander damage along the respiratory tract. The coronavirus targets distinctly shaped protein receptors, and these are found on many organs and tissues, including epithelial cells. When an infection harms the epithelium lining the trachea and bronchi, it can result in the loss of protective mucus-producing cells, as well as the tiny hairs or cilia that sweep dirt and respiratory secretions out of the lungs. It's part of the interplay between the initial damage caused by the virus and the secondary damage caused by the body's own inflammatory response. And that combination can lead you to have more severe disease that can set you up for the third piece of this puzzle, which is that if you damage especially the lower respiratory tract epithelium and all the barriers that you have in your lungs from keeping bacteria and other pathogens from getting down into the lung meaning that you've damaged the lining of the tracheobronchial tree so that the cilia that constantly move all this material upward are lost. Uh, you lose uh, mucus secretion. You have no ability to keep stuff out of the lower respiratory tract. You can set yourself up for an, in, an invasive secondary bacterial infection. In the case of Spanish flu, autopsies and experimental studies performed in the Torbenberger lab show that almost everyone who died from the 1918 pandemic succumbed to a secondary bacterial pneumonia. Jeffrey says it's too early to say if something similar is happening with COVID-19. The coronavirus has some features that set it apart from flu. One is that it's capable of replicating not just in the cells of the respiratory system, but also in other parts of the body, including the gastrointestinal tract. And that's probably why some patients experience diarrhoea and why the virus has been found in stool. But it's the damage to the lungs that's filling intensive care unit beds. Many ICU patients require mechanical ventilation to counter low blood oxygen, a condition doctors refer to as hypoxia. 
in terms of end-stage disease, if the lung is damaged, not only from a primary viral infection and or a secondary bacterial infection, both in flu or in coronavirus, the consequence of that is um, decreased lung function, so you have decreased oxygen exchange. And if you uh, have less oxygen available than is needed, you start damaging other end-stage organs, of course, your kidneys, your liver, your brain, your heart. As they get damaged and as your kidneys stop being able to clear toxins, that itself induces more disease. So you can see that you can have this you know, multi-organ failure as an end stage of disease, although it's really primarily related to the loss of pulmonary function and, and hypoxia. During my interview, one of Jeffrey's main collaborators joined the conversation. You guys are pretty I'm pretty sure I don't know anything more. No, no, Dr. No, David no. Morans is a senior scientific advisor to Tony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. David graduated from medical school in 1973 and joined the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Epidemic Intelligence Service a few years later. He's been at the Institute for more than 20 years and was wearing a Navy uniform of the United States Public Health Service. David's been studying emerging infectious diseases, including the ways viruses cause disease, for more than 40 years. He says patterns in COVID-19 patients are pretty familiar. I sometimes think of it as... When you get a bad, overwhelming infection, everything starts to fall apart and cascade. It's like dominoes falling over. You know, the oxygen gets low. The tissue gets more damaged. The immune response is more effective. The oxygen radicals come out. And you, you, you pass a tipping point where everything's going downhill. And at some point, you can't get it back. Both David and Jeffrey agree that chronic conditions like hypertension, diabetes and cancer treatment impair the body's ability to fight the coronavirus. These ailments are more common in older people, which is one of the reasons why age is the biggest risk factor for dying from COVID-19. But that risk overall remains relatively low. The experience doctors are gaining from managing patients and the evidence flowing from clinical trials are informing treatment guidelines. And that should lead to better care for patients. That's it for the Prognosis Daily Edition. For more on the coronavirus crisis from 120 bureaus around the world, visit Bloomberg.com coronavirus. If you appreciate the podcast, please take a moment to rate us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help more listeners find our global reporting. The Prognosis Daily Edition is hosted by me, Laura Carlson. The show is produced by me, Topher Forges, Jordan Gaspure, and Magnus Henriksen. Reporting by Jason Gale. Original music by Leo Sidrin. Our editors are Francesca Levy and Rick Schein. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. Thanks for listening. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.